Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. I'm back today. We'll have three podcasts for you this week. Thanks for everyone who's bearing with me and sticking with the podcast while I complete some other major research tasks, um, but uh, we got a few shows for you, and hopefully you'll enjoy them. Today's a good one. We cover a lot of ground in the opening. The U.S. government now thinks the pandemic did come from the Wuhan Virology Lab. After all, I'm looking forward to all the apologies that will no doubt be forthcoming from our media and medical establishment, etc., uh, maybe not. Maybe we won't. Maybe we won't get those. Doctor Jill says Joe is going to run again. Trump ran up the score in East Palestine, and America is sending more money to Ukraine. Duh. We have that for you, and plus a major woke update, including that Tennessee is going to ban drag shows for children. I think it's a good thing, and uh, we'll see how the experiment goes. There's so much content. You'll get a lot of essential info, a lot of other stories as well in the monologue portion. Before we speak to a really amazing guest, Yeonmi Park. She's a North Korean defector a best-selling author, and she's got her second book out now, While Time Remains, which is not just about her time uh, escaping from North Korea, going through China, back through South Korea, and then in the United States, which is fascinating, but also about her time here. She's been here for eight years. She went to Columbia. She's got a lot of interesting things to say, not just about the Far East, but about her time in America. And it's just terrific stuff. You're not going to want to miss it. Let's get into it. get in the news because there's a lot of it. Um, I guess I'll start with something where I have to admit I did not even read the article. And this is one where I think you guys know if you listen to uh, the amount of ground I cover versus some of my colleagues, not on Patriot, we go deep on Patriot, but uh, you don't talk radio in general. There's a lot of reading the headline, not the article that goes on. Um, But I, I, I read the articles for the vast majority of stories that I'm bringing to your attention. Here is one where I did not bother to read the article and you'll know why. From the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. Energy Department report says that the lab leak is now the most likely source of global coronavirus pandemic. Isn't that excellent? Uh, The reason why I didn't read it is because this is something that we had discussed since May of 2021 on this broadcast. And uh, that was when uh, we spoke to Senator Cotton about it. And that has been the case since the very beginning that we have entertained that idea. And I'll tell you why. Because if you pay attention in Washington you will see that there are a lot of people who are well-meaning and vote properly and are not particularly bright. There are some people who are not well-meaning and vote properly and are rabble-rousers, but, you know, they they vote right, so I leave them alone. Uh, And then there are a handful of people in Washington who not only are well-meaning and bright but and vote properly, but are super-duper, super-duper, duper-duper-duper-duper smart and fearless. And one of those people is Tom Cotton. Another one of those people is Mike Pompeo. And these are people who did not dismiss the idea that it was a lab where the virus came from. Rand Paul is another person on this list. None of these people were dismissive of that idea. And in fact, some of them, uh, Cotton in particular, Pompeo probably close second, were saying, actually, yeah, you know what, actually, it probably is the lab. So it doesn't matter what they're doing to censor you. It doesn't matter if they won't let you post stories about it. Um, that's probably where it is. So we should at least keep it in the conversation. And Joe Biden, of course, since he's been president, which has been uh, most of the pandemic, he's shown utterly uh, no, no interest in getting the bottom of this. 
did I say 2021? I might. I should have said 2020. I mean, it was really like, 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 like that's how long this has been going on, where the lab stuff has been censored. Over and over and over again, things have been censored. Joel Pollack reached out to me, who hosts uh, Brightport News Sunday for us, senior editor for us, pointing out that we had to not put out a story because uh, about the lab leak because we knew we would get censored because all of our colleagues were getting censored. And we had to wait until we felt like we weren't going to get censored to put it out. We weren't going to get canceled. This is the reality that we have to go through, is that I have to every day, as editor-in-chief of Breitbart, balance whether or not I can tell the truth in every format, because in certain formats, we could lose the company if we do that. That's the China-like nature of uh, the way we are at this moment in the news. Because if we lose our ability to share our content on social media, that's totally devastating for a bottom line. We can't function if we do that. So I have to put out everything that um, everything that we can and we'll never be dishonest. And on this show, thank God, I've been able to say everything I want to say. I've never had to be censored here. But when it comes to stuff that goes on Facebook, for example, if we get thrown off of Facebook completely, I mean, that's a huge percentage of our traffic. And... They were censoring people, kicking them offline for suggesting the lab was the place where this pandemic began. And now it is the consensus opinion among scientists. Um, so I didn't even read the article because, of course, we knew that was the case. So will there be apologies doled out? Will St. Anthony Fauci, will he come out and say that, um, you know, I was wrong. I misled people. How many times over the years was he out there saying people don't know where it came from and um, we certainly don't think it was the lab? I don't know if he ever flat out said it's no way it's the lab, but he certainly allowed for people to get thrown offline. By the way, that Joel Pollock story, uh, we ran it verbatim. We didn't change one word in it. We just had to wait until we felt like we were uh, pretty confident we weren't going to lose the entire business for putting out the truth. Isn't that pretty wild? So uh, that's where we are. It's just one of these things where there's sometimes we have to wait for the authorities. And it's a I'm very blessed that working at Breitbart and you never show like this, that so often I feel at least like my audience was informed on this stuff. I think you guys knew it was most likely the lab. And I think you have for years. Um, what was the one they came up with? Oh, yeah, the mask at work. I mean, is the was there a show that was quicker to point out that masks don't work than this one? And now the consensus is masks didn't work. Okay, great. So my eyes are three years ahead. But will anyone who gets most of their news from the New York Times and not Breitbart.com, you know, NPR, not the Patriot Channel, will anyone come over now because they've been lied to? And I don't know. Because contrary to the popular quote, facts don't care about your feelings, I think it's really the opposite sometimes in this country right now. It's feelings don't care about your facts. Our feelings was that this pandemic was some sort of an accident. It was really Donald Trump's fault. It was not Chinese virus lab. That was funded with American money from people like Fauci. My feelings with the masks make me feel good and safe. Even though the facts were suggesting the virus was either going around it or going through it, and the masks weren't really doing anything. It doesn't feel good. All right. If you have any thoughts, I'm all ears. Um, but I got a feeling you guys won't have a lot of thoughts. I got a feeling you probably had a similar reaction to I did, uh, to what I did, which is that Fauci's an even worse guy than we thought. And other than that, we learned nothing new.
All right, here's something we learned. Jill Biden says Joe's getting ready to run, and he just needs to figure out a time and a place to make an announcement. Uh, are you guys surprised by this? Do you still think he's going to run? The polling is not looking good for Biden, and I, I'm I'm tempted not to bring up polls um, because they were all so wrong the last time. I still have a hangover from all the Trafalgar polls that we put out that I report to you guys. Um, clown polls, just totally, just, just like basically like random guessing. It was like a pin, pin the tail in the donkey poll. It was a, we're just going to guess that this is what's going to be. And people have us on their radio. I fell for it. I, I did. They, they, no one had any idea how to poll properly for the last one. How, was there anyone who didn't think a red wave was coming? It was a matter of, was it, was it going to be historic or was it merely going to be big? And then there was no wave. It was basically a trickle. Um, but if you look at the polls, then, you know, Trump is doing well. Um, Ron DeSantis is doing well, even though I think that he's making some massive mistakes by not actually declaring for the presidency at this point. I think um, he's just allowing Trump to make fun of him. He's allowing a lot of rumors to go online about him and his staff. Um, Jeb Bush is out there, you know, campaigning in his behalf already, which is a terrible look. Um, but if you look at favorability polls in this country, the most favorable politicians are those two. And no one really is above water. Joe Biden isn't. He certainly is not popular. But after the midterms and after 2020, then uh, of course he thinks he's got to, he's got to be the front runner. He's got to be the favorite who, if he runs. So, um, the question is, do you think he's going to run? I, I was for sure, but then he's had a bad year so far. Um, I think the, the Penn Biden center and university of Delaware Biden center scandals affected him. And I think the China spy balloon were really bad. And I think that given the proximity to the 2020 election, which is really far off, uh, I understand why that, uh, he hasn't jumped in there yet. I still think he's going to do it, but there were reports out that he was second guessing it, that he wasn't going to do it. And then Jill had to come out there and said, Hey, Hey, no, he's getting ready. And do you trust Jill? Do you think Jill has any idea what she's talking about? I don't know. But I will get your take if you want it. If you want to share it. 60% of voters have less money in their pockets during the Biden presidency, according to a uh, survey Fox put out. Do any of you think you have more money uh, during the Biden presidency? I I, got to say, when the Biden inflation kicked in and I was looking at my uh, accounting looking at my bank statements and seeing, okay, the, the money's going fast here. Um, I had to work extra hard, try to make sure that I got some more cash flow coming. I don't know if you guys felt that way. Imagine many of you did. And it felt like, you know, I just had to grind harder to maintain what I had. And everyone else in my life who maybe does not have that mentality and just sort of lets rise with stuff, they're all feeling very poor. Who are the people who feel like they're not feeling like they have less money in their pocket? That, that's what I don't get. Who are the people who are not on the, why isn't this 100%? What industries are doing well under Biden unless you're in the industry of government? And even so, you got to keep up with inflation, which is so high. It is not slowing down. John Carney has had some really important reporting on this lately for us at Breitbart News. Um, if you look at some of his stories from the end of last week on how the Fed just does not, cannot rein it in so far with the inflation which means we're going to see more rate hikes and they're not working yet. 
So it is interesting to think that maybe the the Fed is potentially fueling inflation, which is Carney's working theory. We'll talk about this this week, I'm sure. But now that the Fed um, is uh, might be started chicken out. So and if they do that, then we could have the the stagflationary cycle that we have all dreaded, where things will get worse overall economically, and inflation will continue to rise. Um. All right, so here's a headline that I got, uh, another one that I got a kick out of. Uh, Paul Ryan is going to skip the Republican National Convention if Trump wins the primary. Uh, does he understand that every time he says this, it, it makes a lot of us want to vote for Trump? It is, I've said this on the show before, I will say it again many times. I, I'm waiting to be swept off my feet. I am waiting to see who will be the next standard bearer for the Republican Party so we can move forward. I always like America when we're moving forward. I don't like when we're going backwards. Obviously, Trump is going backwards, and a lot of his appeal is settling scores and righting wrongs that we felt were done to us and done to him. But when you've got guys like Paul Ryan, who I trust is about the level as I trust Joe Biden, and then he's out there saying, oh, I can't, I can't, I could never support Trump then it, it, it does make you think that, um, you know, well, I don't know, maybe maybe Trump's not so bad. Trump had a great week last week, and I wish I was got to talk about it with you guys on the air. I thought he was uh, his absolute best self in East Palestine and or Palestine. Forgive me if I mispronounce it. Um, but to think that uh, Jill Biden was in Africa and Joe Biden was in Ukraine and Donald Trump was in East Palestine, and he got there before Mayor Pete, and he got there before all the Republican hopefuls who potentially could run in 2024. So how come no one went? It's a major disaster. It was a disgrace. It was a letdown from American business, from American infrastructure, American government, American media. Everyone failed. Everyone failed the people of East Palestine. Everyone. There's no good guy. And so he went out there with some water and he got people some McDonald's and he listened to their stories, took some pictures with them, and he made them feel great. We have a lot of exclusive footage of that at Brightport News if you want to get caught up on it. I, I just can't believe it took two weeks for anyone to get out there who wants to be president. So, and why the current president didn't uh, feel people's pain, especially because he's the choo-choo train guy. He is. Joe Biden is the choo-choo guy. He's made a brand out of the guy who cares most about the choo-choo trains. He's had trillions of dollars of infrastructure, $1.2 trillion bill that uh, Pete was supposed to dole out Hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm sorry, hundreds of billions. Do you know what the budget was when Pete was mayor of, um, uh, what the budget was when Pete was mayor of, um, what was it? Where's Notre Dame? Uh, South Bend, Indiana. It's far less than 1% of what he's supposed to spend as transportation secretary. He doesn't know what he's doing. And the fact that he was a diversity hire and is branded the future of the Democrat Party is not a comfort to anyone in that area. It is not comforting. Um, yeah, so Biden was in Ukraine. Uh, Janet Yellen says we're going to provide $10 billion to Ukraine in the coming months. That surprised you at all? And um, the Biden officials have said Ukraine has not misused any of our funds so far. 
Zelensky basically threatened us, said that we're not going to be able to stop the Russians unless the gravy train keeps coming over and over again. And we're just at a stalemate. We're at a stalemate. There's no real path for peace. And there's no path for either side to win. It's, it's really hard to beat Russia as long as they have nukes. Um, and it is going to be hard to beat Ukraine if they have an unlimited supply of American money, which they do. Remember, America is spending more money on the war than Russia is. And you people like Mitch McConnell claiming that America's safety depends on the Ukrainian border being secured. Not the U.S. border, the Ukrainian border. So I, I don't see where this goes other than stalemate right now. I haven't seen even one solution that seems even remotely close to something better than what we're seeing, which is we spend a lot of money and a bunch of people die in that region. It's pretty bad. It's arguably the worst case scenario. Very expensive and a lot of death. Um, I'm willing to even entertain, as someone who's not obsessed with that region, that it is even worse now than if Putin just would have won quickly. Now, I don't want Putin to win. I don't like the idea of Putin winning. And I generally think that if we were able to fend off Putin for a much lower price tag with some accountability, probably would have been the best case scenario. But is this really better? That we're just going to keep cutting checks to Ukraine forever? What, 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 what else is there? Is there anything else on the table other than we keep paying for Ukraine to defend their border while we don't defend ours? There's nothing else. There's nothing else being shared. I would like to see the path Ukrainians have to winning or the path to peace. Can the American public have that or no? Marjorie Taylor Greene is calling for a full audit of Ukrainian aid. She's right to ask for it. She will not get it. It's a good thing to say, but it's not going to get it. Because Washington is all in on this. It also adds a... Uh, element of just easy dunks for Trump for running for a president. I saw Trump's campaign and put a meme out or someone, maybe Trump's family that like I stand with America and it was basically formatted like an I stand with Ukraine type meme that you've seen online. So we're a year in and uh, we are just beginning to spend at this point. Zelensky said America will lose NATO and global leadership role if it stops funding the Ukraine war. Pay that man his money. It's a, a, a amazing phenomenon that it's so trendy. It's so cool. People are so into this guy. Um, all right. 866-95-PATRIOT. Pete did apologize, by the way, for uh, the, uh, the losing his train of thought while he was visiting East Palestine. He finally went, wore a hard hat had a vest on, and he had no idea what he was saying. That's great. All right, Epic Woke Update coming your way right now. Tennessee legislature passes a bill to ban drag shows in front of kids. I love this, and I think that this is one of the best parts of federalism, is that our states are supposed to be laboratories. We're supposed to try different stuff. We are seeing all trans stuff in the blue areas, and it doesn't seem great. It seems to be very confusing. Our children don't seem to be growing up any happier or more fulfilled. It seems like they're growing up more depressed and they're less happy, less healthy. 
Uh, obviously, things have gotten way out of hand on the LGBTQ stuff. Gen Z is now 20% identifying as LGBTQ+, two-spirit, three-spirit, four-spirit, IA. So uh, 20%, 7.2% total of U.S. adults now. This is up from about 3.5% in 2012. So do you think perhaps it's cultural? The silent generation has a 1.7% and the baby boomers have a 2.7% identification as LGBTQ+. Gen X, where uh, I think we're finally getting to the point where mostly people who could come out could live a a good life, 3.3%. I got a feeling that's pretty close to the the real number, but millennials are now 11.2% and Gen Z 19.7% or LGBTQ+, 2A, 3A, 4A, 5A. Six spirit, whatever. There's no stopping it. Like, like who's to say two spirit is all you get? Are, are we are we happier or are we nuttier? Are we making ourselves crazy? And are we trying to solve all of our problems with whatever viral hokum is out there to try to explain the uh, the natural pain that a lot of people have growing up and finding their identity that everyone has to some degree. So, thus, if you're in a blue state, um, I think you're abusing children, but Theoretically, you can have this crazy stuff. I think it's insane. But if you're in a sane red state, then why would you have it? When you're in a state like Tennessee, which has Republican governance, Republican senators, everyone's on point. Um, then the why not just try it without this? It's a. I'm always curious. We don't spend enough time on this on the show. I would love to have more of you who have kids in middle school and high school call in and talk about this stuff because my the the moms and dads at Breitbart who have kids older than mine, uh, middle school, high school, they say it's a daily thing where everyone's changing their sex and gender every day. They can't keep up. Uh, and you're, we're seeing stuff like how men, for example are single and sexless, according to Technology Today. A new study came out from Pew that um, Psychology Today had written up. Sexual intimacy at a 30-year low across genders. 60% of young men are currently single. Uh, We're not teaching people how to be appealing the opposite sex. It's not cultural anymore. What's cultural now is to identify as whatever crazy thing is. And then there's all this access to online entertainment, some of it of the adult variety, which is very easy to find satisfaction and gratification without having to commitment, have commitment to better yourself, to work on relationships, to be patient, to not have instant gratification. Um, it continues, there is a, a children's book series about inspiring women and this is not a joke. This is not the Babylon Bee. Inspiring women. And they're going to do a biography about Rachel Levine. Formerly Richard Levine, the Admiral. Dr. Levine, the highest ranking openly trans official in the United States, who is Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, four-star Admiral, and U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps. Um, so this is just a, it's just such a fraud. And it just like, it's not just that Rachel Levine is a woman, which he is not. He's a man, but Rachel Levine is a terrific woman. And of all the great women out there, this is one that gets a book. So this book series, which has 
featured people like um, Oprah Winfrey, Sonia Sotomayor, people who uh, I, I don't agree with their politics, but obviously have achieved stuff in their life. And now we're having a man is getting one of these books. So uh, we're we're out of women to celebrate. We're now on to the the one who's actually a guy. How is that good for women? I don't get it. The wokeness will never stop. James Bond books are going to be edited to remove racist references. So we had last week, I didn't get to talk about it. Again, I was off the air, um, but Roald Dahl's books getting edited to take out some of the fun there. Uh, it's that, that one's coincidental because we're reading Master Marlowe. We're going through the Roald Dahl books and they're pretty great. They're pretty great. They're enjoyable and they keep uh, the, the youngsters attention. They're exciting. And um, just the right amount of edgy, I think, for some of the younger kids who are, you know, starting to get imaginations. Uh, those are kind of, those are canceled. Those got to get edited because they're too fat phobic, stuff like that. And then James Bond's going to get edited. I mean, the whole point of James Bond, as we've discussed in the show, is that it is supposed to be a fantasy. It's supposed to be exciting. It's he's going to save the world and then he's going to drink a martini and sleep with women. And then it's all fantasy. It's like an ultimate male fantasy that you're going to save the planet and then you're going to have a great party. And now they're going to be removing racist references. I mean, how many people have been big James Bond fans? I think it was Dennis Prager was pointing out that it was uh, like JFK was a big James Bond fan. So like it's the are, are we going to cancel the people who supported these people? I, I think that's going to be next. Once we're done canceling James Bond, we're going to have to go back and see who likes James Bond. Well, they're canceled too. We're not, we're not, that's, that, that is not enough just to cancel the content. We're going to also have to cancel the people who supported the content. All right, 866-95-PATRIOT, a few others before we get to the phone. John Fetterman's wife has fled the country with her children after he checked in to the hospital. I, I wanted to bring up John Fetterman because he's now for sure my favorite politician in America. There's not, it's not even close. It, this is a guy who is not that he's got one foot in the grave. He's got one foot and two giant arms. He's had a stroke. He's got that massive growth in the back of his neck. He doesn't know where he is. He can't uh, hear what people are saying when you talk to him. And he managed to become a senator. He managed to win a purple seat to survive one of the handpicked candidates of Donald Trump. Dr. Oz, a family friend of Dr. Oz, and a seat that gave the Democrats a one-vote swing in the positive direction, completely deflating any positivity, ego, etc., that anyone on the right would have from the midterm elections. Do we have one person like that on the right? Do we have one person who is that dedicated to our cause? I don't know if we do. I don't know if we do. If we were on, uh, uh, if John Fetterman was a Republican and he pulled that off, he would be for sure the man of the year. He would for sure be my man of the year. And it may be more than that. Maybe be, if there's a Hall of Fame for politicians that I would admire, Fetterman would be up there. The only reason why he's not is because he's Democrat. And so he is not doing well health-wise back in the hospital which the media slow walked and finally we realized it, it seems bad. And so his wife, who is a very creepy person, who put him up to all of it, for sure. And she just boned out. I'm out of here. 
She tweeted over the weekend, I'm not sure how to navigate this journey, but I'm figuring out slowly one week ago today when the news dropped. Kids were off from school, a media truck circled our home. I did the thing I could think of, packed them in the car and drive. And uh, the story took her end up out of the country. Um, Fetterman is, uh, he's also depressed. Could you imagine what a, the amount of pressure he must be under and how long he's been under it? I try to be sensitive here as a human being, and it's hard to do. We all, because he's such a caricature. He looks like a WWE guy. His politics are terrible. He had no idea what he was saying when he was on the stump. And the media propped him up and got him across the finish line. But if the shoes are on the other foot, then uh, this would be one of the most compelling human stories there is. Because he did a heroic thing on behalf of his side. And he did it when he was propped up by these terrible people. Now, the terrible people can't handle it. The wife who let him go through it. Who didn't say, hey, stop. We can stop. We can stop. We don't need this. Now she's out. Okay, 866-95-PAGE. If you want to go uh, and uh, speak to us, speak to me. Not us, me. I'll do two more, and I got a lot, but I'll, I'll do two more, and then we'll, then, we'll, then we'll hit the phones. And New York Times admitted that Joe Biden's migrant children work uh, brutal jobs. There's been a huge uptick in uh, children who have been busted in working menial jobs across the country over the last couple of years. If you look at the reports in places like New York Times, you might notice something that's uh, conspicuously absent from a lot of the reports. It is where these children are from. Uh, these are uh, not private school dropouts from L.A., New York. These are uh, unaccompanied alien children, et cetera, who've been released in the country. They're trying to make money, trying to send it back to their, to their homes, their homeland. And people don't make this connection. Neil Monroe does for us at Breitbart routinely. But it is basically a semi-slave labor force imported by Joe Biden. And finally, we're getting some acknowledgement that, oh, yeah, these are, these are migrants. These are alien children who are here. And last one, this one's fun. Former Black Panther Angela Davis shocked to find that she's a descendant of a Mayflower settler. How great is that? Black Panther, critical race theory advocate and activist. She was in disbelief when she learned that uh, one of her ancestors came to America on the Mayflower. It's colonialism. Yomi Park is my guest. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Her insight into America is very, very sharp. And I ask her about her time at Columbia. I ask her about learning resilience, if Americans are learning it. And then I'm asked, I ask her as well if Americans are paying sufficient attention to some of the true evils that are going on around the globe. And you're not going to want to miss her answers. Let's get into it. Yonmi Park is her name, and she's got a new book out called Wild Time Remains, A North Korean Defector's Search for Freedom in America from Threshold, which is my publisher, which is doubly exciting for me. Uh, Yonmi, it's great to meet you. Uh, it is uh, a really important work you're doing as a human rights activist and author. I know it's your second book. Your first one was a, was a massive success as well. But uh, could you introduce yourself to the audience for people? People might not be familiar with your story. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I was born in North Korea in 1993, 1993, and then I was 13 years old. 
I just simply could not find any things to eat. So I escaped from North Korea into China. And as I, as soon as I got there, I was sold into sex slavery uh, for just over $20. And after two years of my time in China, I was rescued by Christians from South Korea. And then eventually I crossed the frozen Gobi Desert into Mongolia. And eight years ago, I came to America and became a citizen. Tell me how you got out to begin with. How did you get out? How did you make it out of North Korea? Yeah, so luckily I was living in the border town of North Korea. So at nighttime, I was able to see the lights coming from Chinese side. And I think that's why I just knew maybe where they're like, I could find something to eat in China because they had lights. Unlike North Korea, we could not even afford electricity at nighttime. So uh, I, my sister escaped first, and she left the late uh, not to say find the lady. And then some by I don't know some miracle she was willing to help me, and she bribed the guards at the border, and the one of the brokers took me to China with my mother initially. Uh, when you got out into China, you had nothing, and so what was the who found you? How did they find you? And then uh, tell me what happened next. So as I said, the lady who were helping me and my mother to escape when I was 13 years old, uh, turns out she was a human trafficker too. So she was selling us to Chinese human traffickers to the ones that would buy North Korean girls for sex slaves. So that's how I landed on the Chinese human traffickers. This lady was not just simply helping me. She was selling my mother and myself to them to be bought and sold, to exploit it. And so you are rescued. How, how did you get rescued? Because it seems like if you've been trafficked and your family's been trafficked, and clearly there's a network there that is trying to, to harm you and keep you as a slave, then how do you, how do you free yourself from that? Yeah, so during this time, uh, after two years of my slavery in China, we met one of the fellow North Korean defective women, and somehow she knew about these missionaries that came from South Korea rescuing North Korean defectors. And then uh, we called the number, and then the missionaries said, you know, why don't you guys come to this shelter? They had a shelter where they were giving up food to North Korean people and then teaching them about the Bible. So we joined the, the shelter and then once we got there, we heard about Jesus, we heard about God, and two months afterwards studying Bible, they told us that if we want to escape from China and to become free, they said that we had to walk across the frozen Gobi Desert into Mongolia in 2009 when I was 15 years old, and that's what I did. Did it take a lot of bravery to do that, or did you know right away you wanted to do it? I think in, I mean, that was the only way I could live with dignity. I mean, if I didn't do that, I would be forever a slave, and even that, I would not be guaranteed to be alive. Chinese authority constantly was searching North Korean women to catch them, and send them back to North Korea to be killed and tortured. So uh, I think it was not even, 
I guess it was some kind of courage, but it was more like a necessity. We had to do it to survive. So then the next step is to make it to America. How did you get here? Oh, so I was in South Korea from Mongolia, and I was there for five years. And coming to America was easy, actually. I came for the first time to study Bible in Tyler, Texas, to do some uh, missionary work. And then I went back to South Korea, and then I came back to write my first book uh, in New York City, and then I went to Columbia University. So that's how I came, and then uh, the fortunate U.S. government gave me one visa, something called the Extraordinary Visa, and from there I was able to get green card and become a citizen last year. When you got to America, how did it compare to the America you were taught about when you were in North Korea? In, in some ways, it's like a, literally a different planet. Uh, somehow they told us when I was in North Korea that Americans were not even human beings. They were cold-blooded reptiles that would eat, torture our children. And when I came here, Americans were the most generous, kindest, positive, warm people. And, you know, I couldn't believe it. And not only that, like, this land was beautiful, and this country had so much food and abundance and freedom. I could not even have fathomed that oh, people can be this free and prosperous in any way. So at, at Columbia, what did, what did you think of it there? Because it's an amazing trajectory already that you're on. So you've gone from uh, the, North Korea, which is basically like a prison, it's sold into human trafficking, uh, escaped to South Korea, then you're in Texas studying the Bible, and then now you're at Columbia. Mm -hmm. uh, what was life like there? How were you received? What did people think of you? Yeah, so I think that is also going from Tyler, Texas, going to New York City and putting at Columbia University was another different, like, planet experience. I got to New York and Columbia. I remember the first orientation, and that really made me confused because I somehow thought that I was transferred back to North Korean classroom because the professors and everybody was saying that the, all the problems that we have in the world right now is because of the greedy capitalism, because of American democracy, and because of white men. And the only solution for all these problems is a communist revolution. And they said that we have to destroy this mental American system and tear down the Constitution because it's a bigoted, bigoted document. So, and that's when I was like really, really shocked because the people at Columbia University were learning exact same things that I was learning in North Korean classroom. It was an equal same amount of indoctrination and propaganda. Um, it is uh, really important to bring up, and again, Yeonmi Park is the author of the new book, Well Time Remains, and she's a defector from North Korea who's now a human rights advocate and best-selling author uh, doing incredibly important work. Uh, you write a lot in the book about, about your dad, and it's really his spirit that guided you a lot during these times. Oh, what did he say about America? What was his concept of, of America? What, was, what did he instill in you that made you pursue uh, this life that you've chosen? I think it was he, he was a North Korean man. I mean, 
I never even seen the map of the world in North Korea. We don't even know the existence of internet. We don't even know the concept of race because in North Korea, they brainwash you to believe that I was Kim Il-sung race. Our calendar begins when Kim Il-sung was born, not the Jewish class was born. Our time zone is different because we have a revolutionary time zone. It's like a completely isolated country. But despite all of that, somehow my father understood the concept of life that you have to become resilient. No matter how hard life is, you always have to learn how to fight back. And that life is precious. You need to fight for life at all costs. So there were times when, for me, quitting life was the easiest thing that I had. You know, living was so painful and hard. And I think his lesson made me to fight for life no matter what. But he didn't really understand about much about America. Or maybe even he did. It's like in North Korea, if you said one thing wrong, then it would kill three generations of my family. And that's why my dad mother told me that don't even whisper because the birds and mice could hear me. So I was not able to hear his thoughts on these things, unfortunately. Do you find that when you're here in America that we lived up to that uh, uh, reputation of resilience uh, or do you feel like that we disappoint in that regard because I talk on the show a little bit about how I feel like we're we're not instilling resilience as a value um, how does it compare uh, to what you might have expected it's shockingly that I mean Americans the founding fathers they were the definition of perseverance and resilience right they came to this country and against all odds all that difficulty they faced they built this amazing, beautiful country that respects individual liberty. But I do see that it's so sad to see a Colombia in this best, one of the best institutions, educational institutions in the world, saying that the most important thing is like emotional safety, the safe space, and most important thing is equity, the equality of outcomes. That definitely evil ideology that drove North Korea what it is. So it's not about, you know, resilience. That literally at Columbia, the professors give trigger warnings and saying, if you cannot handle this reading materials, not about like getting physically into danger, reading materials, you don't even need to do the reading. You don't even need to come to class. And you don't even need to tell me why you don't come to class because how it triggers you. And like that is a complete opposite of teaching people about resilience is like becoming bubble wrapping these people, not exposing them to any reality whatsoever and take the actual natural immune to a way so they can handle any reality at all. So it's, it's a truly heartbreaking, almost you become disabled mentally to come out of this institution and cannot handle anything. And no wonder most of my friends who live in the best city in the world is in New York City going to therapy and on a lot of anxiety wow. peers and medicated yes. heavily and yeah yeah it's a it's very it's a very scary warning uh, i i want to bring up that you i know were heavily influenced by orwell um <laughs> Uh, it, it comes off as, as, I guess, a bit of a cliche, but I find myself referring to Orwell constantly and coming back to his his works. Is there any one, part of it that stuck out to you in particular coming from North Korea? 
yeah, I think that's one thing that made me to stand up and risk my life to fight for freedom is that when I was in North Korea, when I was born in the country, I did not even know that I was oppressed. Not knowing is the like, definition of oppression. Like, how do you fight to be free if you don't know you're a slave? And when I come to America, all these people say how they're oppressed. Obviously, they're not oppressed. But what I am scared of is that it is so easy for human beings to lose the concept of freedom, that justice. Like, somehow, we don't know that when we are born, these concepts are so important. It needs to be taught. So I'm really afraid that how come in America twist the definition of freedom, twist the definition of oppression, and we lose that truth. And truth is so easily lost in countries like North Korea and dictatorship. So I really hope Americans to stand up defending that truth because truth is so easily lost and they really yes. attack after truth. It's such important words. Yomi Park is with me. She's the author of the new book, While Time Remains, which is out now. Everyone should pick it up. Uh, when you first started doing international media, North Korea was a top-tier issue in the West, and it's really been relegated to something of an afterthought uh, under Joe Biden during his presidency. Uh, why do you think that is, and uh, what is your opinion of that? Yeah, thank you for giving the opportunity. Um, it seems that I don't really understand why, though, because I think for Biden to acknowledge North Korea as a threat, that means that he needs to acknowledge that China as a threat against America. Because the only reason that North Korea region exists currently is because of Chinese Communist Party's help. Without Chinese Communist Party help, China cannot survive even one week without them. So North Korea conducting all these dangerous missiles, I mean, literally every day almost. And is a, North Korea's only threat is destroying America. And I think that Biden is very afraid to admit that somehow China is actual enemy because this is China doing right behind the scene. And I think that's why it was very important for President Trump to acknowledge and bring the light out to public that what is who is responsible for this crisis is China, that is human rights abuses and this enslavement of 25 million of North, North Korean people and 300,000 North Korean women in China are living as modern-day slaves, and their organs are harvested out of them and they're sold like livestock. And this issue cannot be escalated and does not get the mainstream media attention because they are covering up for China right now. Uh, is Kim Jong-un more or less secure in power now than he was a decade ago? Not anyway, because his power does not come from him. It comes from China. China wants this regime, this regime, this kind of setup that set up by the, in the name of the Kim family. But it is literally a setup that just maintaining the status quo and become a buffer zone and become a almost a leverage against the U.S. So it's a no matter if Kim Jong-un is there or not, or whoever in charge, North Korea will be current system as long as China wants it to be this way. I noticed that he started displaying his daughter recently in public life. I guess it was last few months that this has happened. Uh, why is he doing this? What is he? What is the message he's sending? 
the message he's really sending to the North Korean people or the Westerners is that he's been doing a lot of dangerous missile tests that can reach America. And and then he, as using his daughter, taking her to this missile launches, he's trying to soften his image, showing to North Korean people that the reason he's conducting all these missile tests and why millions of North Korean people are starving and dying from starvation is that he's trying to protect the next generation of North Koreans from the American invasion. That he, she became a propaganda tool for Kim Jong-un for the outside world to look like he looks like some loving father that is trying to protect in his own country and to his own people that he's also not a loving father that taking care of his own citizens. And, you know, she is the person that he's protecting too. So it's a completely distraction and propaganda tool from what he's actually doing is really malicious act and conducting all these missile tests to eventually attack America. You've done an amazing job helping Americans understand what daily life is like in North Korea, and they should read both your books, understand that. But could you just convey to us what you think are the most important things that Americans must know about North Korea right now? What's the hardest part about being there and being raised there? Yeah, I think this is a really hard part is that somehow Americans do not understand a lot of them. All these people recalling that, you know, somehow silence is a violence and they have people talking about all these corporations and Hollywood talking about Black Lives Matter and I remember last year I got a script from one of the Hollywood producers who were trying to make movie about my first book. And in my script, it says somehow when I got to China, that was my promised land. The Chinese authority gave me refuge and protect me. And wow. I the producer, I was like, what do you mean? This is not even close to what happened. And he said, this is the only way that we can make a movie about North Korea and Korean Hollywood. I think American people don't know how many American institutions are hijacked, are are sold to this horrible Chinese regime, including Hollywood, including academia, including mainstream media. So I think that has been why we could not help North Korean people and end the North Korean slavery. So I really hope them to understand how deep this infiltration of Chinese regime has been to American institutions that a lot of things that we see is also propaganda, that it becomes harder and harder to see the truth in America now. So I think it's even in America that we don't have that time left to push back. So that's why I wrote my second book, To Wake Up America. Well, we're very happy you're here and we're very happy you're writing. While Time Remains is Yomni Park's latest book, A North Korean Defector's Search for Freedom in America. And uh, come back whenever you like, Yomni. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I'm American made. I got American parts. That is today's broadcast. Thanks so much to producer Zach Jones for putting it together. Robert Marlowe, who helps me select topics for the opening, and all of you who share the podcast with people. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you tomorrow.